Okay, let's get started. So, um, <coughs> my sense of the desert, I'm going to take it into a literary place. We have, I, I really try to cover all the bases in this course. We emphasize visual art, but um, we also look at poetry, literature, philosophy, architecture, a little smattering of film. So um, today we're going to kind of go at it in a more literary way. And um, I put up this Hollywood poster from a movie because there's a, a big tradition in our, in our American culture of these uh, Westerns, obviously. And I thought about the desert as a as sort of a metaphor in, in Western movies. And it's basically a place where the outlaws go to hide. And that's not just in Hollywood. I mean, that's really entrenched in the idea of the wilderness being a place of lawlessness. Uh, it's outlaw. It's beyond the pale of human society. And then, of course, the hero has to go to the desert and, and catch the outlaw and bring him back for justice. So I just wanted to sort of put that in your head. Um, so in looking at... People, yes, this is a major Whoa. shift. We went from the ridiculous to the sublime or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I should have warned you. You probably just got whiplash going from uh, Hollywood to Franz Kafka, but that's just how I roll, so get used to it. My father looked exactly like that. Really? Yeah. Wow, interesting. So Franz Kafka uh, was uh, from Prague. 1883 to 1924. This is a list of his best-known works. And um, Kafka sort of embodies the idea of the outsider, the person who really sees himself outside of society as an other. Um, some of the ideas in his work uh, were alienation, repulsion of the physical body, powerlessness, bureaucracy, a sense of being caught in a maze, fruitless toil. He was a Jewish artist who wrote in German in a Czech-speaking country. So just think about that. And one of the things about him was that he had a father who was very, very domineering, almost really to the point of emotional abuse. And he was very um, crippled by that relationship. He never married. He did have a lot of... Um, entanglements, erotic entanglements, but the actual relationships he had with women always came to naught, and his, his father and his mother had a big, a lot to do with that, because nobody was ever good enough. So he was um, romantically unfulfilled, and um, he really is sort of a prototype for a lot of figures in literature of Jewish males. Um, I want to bring up this book. I know, it's whiplash again. So I want to recommend this book. This is called Shop Talk, and it's by Philip Roth. And you have a sheet. I gave you a sheet today that lists all the artists and all the, the bibliography. So, um, And I was reading an article in Tablet Magazine by Cynthia Zarin, and she said she made the – or it was actually in The New Yorker, sorry. She made the case that um, Philip Roth's uh, – protagonists in, in Goodbye Columbus and Portnoy's Complaint are very much like Max from Where the Wild Things Are. And I thought that's an interesting connection. So you also have Maurice Sendak, who created books that were ostensibly children's books, but he said there's no such thing as a children's book. Books are books. 
and he really dealt with a lot of difficult emotions, but he had this sort of um, uh, wild little boy who's misbehaving at home, and then he goes where the wild things are. <clears throat> so we're thinking of Midbar as where the wild things are, at least emotionally. So um, this book, Shop Talk, had interviews with authors, including uh, this list, Primo Levy, Aharon Appelfeld, Ivan Kleeman, Isaac Bishava Singer. And um, it, it's really great because it's not only interesting from a literary standpoint, but he really talks about the creative process in a way that I think everybody in this room can, can relate. Now, the last person on this list, Bruno Schultz, is a very, very significant, important Jewish writer that you need to know about, and not very well known. He, um, was, he lived his whole life in a, a town in, in um, uh, gosh, I think it was in Czechoslovakia also, it was uh, Drohovich. And he lived from 1892 to 1942, 50 years. He was shot by the Nazis. Yes, and um, this is a photo of him. He's in the center of the photo. He, he was a high school teacher. He was a drafting teacher, and he was this prodigiously talented author and visual artist, and I'm going to show you a few of his works. Um, during the Nazi occupation, he was shot dead on the street by a Gestapo officer because that officer was mad because Schultz's protector, another Gestapo officer who had him doing things like painting murals in his child's nursery, that his protector, Schultz's protector, had shot dead the favorite Jew of the other Nazi. So this Nazi re retaliated by shooting him dead on the street. His, his work, um, he was a, an intensely private person, very much like Kafka, and he also carried on a very significant uh, uh, correspondence with, with people and their letters have been collected. Kafka also was a prodigious letter writer and we have those letters. So there was this very rich private life but in his, his daily life he lived in a very ordinary town and lived a very ordinary life but inside he was uh, unbelievably uh, fecund with uh, literary creativity and art. <clears throat> Here is a drawing that he did and um, I think this just so well epitomizes the psychological state of Schultz and these others. Uh, he, he shows, it very much looks like, they all look like him really, but this boy, it's like a, he's an overgrown boy in the short pants and he's trailing behind the domineering father. The, um, one of his books that survives is The Street of Crocodiles. And The Street of Crocodiles describes um, a father who is, not as cruel and domineering as Kafka's father, but um, domineering in the sense that he was completely out of his mind, and that sort of took over. So is it a novel rather than a memoir? Or? Yeah, it's, it's like you could loosely call it a novel, although to say that it's a narrative is, it's, it's kind of hallucinogenic, really. I mean, it's kaleidoscopic, okay. and I'm going to read you a little bit of it so you get a flavor of it. But I wanted to show you the art first. <clears throat> Isaac Bashevis Singer... In, in the book, uh, Shop Talk, as interviewed by Philip Roth, said that he felt that uh, Schultz was better than Kafka, which is really saying something. Uh, Singer said, there is great mockery in the writing of both Schultz and Kafka, although in Kafka the mockery is more hidden. I think that Schultz had enough power to write real serious novels, but instead often wrote a kind of parody. 
And I think basically he developed this style because he was not really at home, neither at home among the Poles, oh, Poland, not Czechoslovakia, sorry, nor at home among the Jews. It's a style that's somewhat characteristic also of Kafka because Kafka also felt that he had no roots. He was a Jew who wrote in German and lived in Czechoslovakia where the language was actually Czech. And here you have Schultz who was a Jew who wrote in Polish. Okay, but he was on the out sort of with his own community. And he, before, he, before the war, he was starting to become known. People were like passing around his, his books. You know, it, it, it was like almost like Samizdat, like uh, writers were aware of him. But the Polish Literary Society in Warsaw did not accept him because he was a Jew. And the Yiddish Literary uh, Society didn't really accept him because he was writing in Polish. So he's really an outsider. Here's a, um, I think it's an engraving. And again, it's a self-portrait. And you see this sort of um, sense of shame, sense of humiliation. And this is a theme that carried through his work. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you an excerpt from The Street of Crocodiles, which describes uh, the father in this, in this novel who's sort of shut in upstairs and they hear him, and they see him through the windows. So he kind of shuts himself into his own room. <clears throat> Excuse me. In daytime, these were more arguments. There, there were more arguments and persuasions, long, monotonous reasonings conducted half aloud and with humorous interludes of teasing and banter. But at night, these voices arose with greater passion. The demands were made more clearly and more loudly and we heard him talk to God as if begging for something or fighting against someone who made insistent claims and issued orders. Until one night that voice rose threateningly and irresistibly, demanding that he should bear witness to it with his mouth, Midbar, and with his entrails. And we heard the spirit enter into him as he rose from his bed, tall and growing in prophetic anger, choking with brash words that he emitted like a machine gun. We heard the din of battle and father's groans, the groans of a titan with a broken hip, but still capable of wrath. I have never seen an Old Testament prophet, but at the sight of this man, stricken by God's fire, sitting clumsily on an enormous china chamber pot, behind a windmill of arms, a screen of desperate wrigglings, over which there towered his voice, grown unfamiliar and hard, I understood the divine anger of saintly men. It was a dialogue as grim as the language of thunder. The jerkings of his, arm, of his arms cut into the sky into pieces, and in the cracks there appeared the face of Jehovah, swollen with anger and spitting out curses. Without looking, I saw him, the terrible demiurge, as resting on darkness as on Sinai, propping his powerful palms on the palmet of the curtains. He pressed his enormous face against the upper panes of the window, which flattened horribly his large fleshy nose. Suddenly the window opened with a dark yawn and a sheet of darkness wafted across the room. In a flash of lightning, I could see my father, his nightshirt unbuttoned as, cursing terribly, he emptied with a masterful gesture the contents of the chamber pot into the darkness below. So there you have... Uh, I mean, he's so original and, and very funny in a very dark way. A lot of his art, he's got a huge number of images like this that have to do with erotic humiliation. 
And this, this was one I could bring to class. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I didn't know about those um, because uh, what I had seen was a few illustrations in the book. So that was interesting. So there's a lot of anxiety, uh, sexual tension, sexual anxiety. Looks like a leash. I think she's got him on a leash, and he's sort of half tiger. So, yeah, yeah, this, interesting. So this is a still from a film, uh, an animated film by the brothers Quay, and all of these references are in your sheet. Uh, Stephen and Timothy Quay are identical twins from Philadelphia, but they are expats living in London. And this film, they say that all of their work is based on the work of Bruno Schultz. And this one is called um, Street of Crocodiles, after Schultz's book. And Terry Gilliam, who's the oh, animator from Monty Python, Monty Python and, and many other things, he selected their film, Street of Crocodiles, as one of the top ten best animated films of all time. Wow. And I put a link to it. There, it. You can see an excerpt of it on YouTube. Okay. So it's in your uh, materials. Oh, you can you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's quite, it's very creepy. <laughs> um, and I am, I know I'm really whipping through this fast, but I want to get to the presentation. So forgive me. Um, now, I'll get to this in a moment. Maya Goldberg, writing in Tablet Ma Magazine, said, "Encountering Schultz, Bruno Schultz, for the first time." can feel like coming across a strange animal with an uncomfortably strong smell, which one is reluctant to touch with ungloved hands. <laughs> the quays reproduce this effect perfectly. So I thought about this when you were reading numbers, your corpses will drop in the desert. Um, this idea of the Midbar is a psychological place too. It's a place outside of society. It's a place of alienation. It's a place of death. Um, and it's, um, it's also a place of hiding. So it, 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 in surrealism, it's, it's a place of alienation, but it also can be a place of hiding. Now, I thought about the, uh, the dry bones, the, re the Ezekiel chapter, the, the uh, reanimation of the dry bones. So Ezekiel is called uh, upon by God to... Um, prophesied to the Is Israelites, and God shows him an image in the desert of dry, dead bones, which he then reanimates and brings back to life. And he says, um, Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. So this idea that um, in the desert uh, there is death and that Israel can be brought back to life through the power of prophecy. So I bring you uh, Yindrich Heisler. Uh, he was born in <coughs> Eastern Bohemia in 1915, and he was a surrealist photographer and a poet. Heisler came to Prague in 1936. He was 21 years old, after the death of his father, a wealthy Jewish industrialist. So he's half Jewish. His father was Jewish. He had trained to be a chemist, but he wrote beautiful, dreamlike poems reminiscent of Rambo's illuminations. And by 1936, he was active in a surrealist group in Prague. His first surrealist collaboration, The Spectres of the Desert, was a privately printed book. It was a group of poems that were dream imaginings of desiccated phantom and totemic figures in a bare land or an open sea. And it was published 
1939, right after the Nazi invasion, and they published it under a false name because he was a Jew. So interestingly, he lived out the war in hiding in Prague, kind of hiding in plain sight in a sense, but he, he moved around and just sort of uh, stayed with different people in different hiding places, and he continued to make art this whole time. All of the work I'm going to show you is from 1944, wow. which is kind of astonishing. So I'm thinking in this sense of the Midbar as the hiding place. Mm -hmm. The Jew is literally outside of society. And I thought that it was it's quite relevant to what we're talking about. Well, that's what Moses does after he kills the Egyptian. He goes, he runs away to the desert. Exactly, exactly. So the, I'm thinking of it in that sense. With defiance and commitment, Heisler continued living in Prague and working as a surrealist pushing forward the concept of book art and exploring techniques of photographic montage. And I have a, um, an essay that I'm reading from uh, by Frances Brent that was in Tablet Magazine. And she also makes a, the connection that he was very interested in book arts, which was really a new thing at that time. Um, and that's very Jewish, you know, that obsession with the book. Um, while a good deal, she says, while a good deal of avant-garde art was produced in wartime Poland and Czechoslovakia, it's unusual for it to have been produced by a Jew in hiding. So this work, um, he would set up these little dioramas and photograph them. And I, this immediately made me think of the Valley of Dry Bones from Ezekiel. So he has a, a doll and these bones. This is 1944. <laughs> So this one is really kind of eerie. Um, it's just, it's a rake with these candles in the hayloft. I mean, I don't really need to add anything to it, but, I, but he's doing this in 1944. There are six candles. It, 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 no, it's just coincidence, but... It, it is such a no uh, really a potent emblem. So the reminiscence of the he has no rest. Right, it's true. Mm -hmm. no. No. Oh no, Shabbat! Oh, that's interesting. But it looks also like like we the pits with the bones were, were of the people that were killed in the Holocaust. Know you know? Yes, yeah, it does. And and he couldn't have known that. Yeah, the hay looks like piles of bones, piles of other things that we've seen. Now, this is an image that he did during that time, and I bring it up because it's, to us as Jewish artists, it's so emblematic, but it's really, it sort of turns the tree of life on its head. I mean, yeah. it's a dead tree, and also we, we often see in Jewish art the, the tree surrounded by a little fence because asula hasiagla Torah, you're supposed to make a, a fence for the Torah to, with your life. You, um, you, you create a safe zone and allow the Torah to thrive through your actions, through the doing of mitzvot. So this is such a bleak rendition. And I don't, I don't know how much Jewish background he had as far as ritual or any of that. I don't know that he would have ever celebrated Shabbat. His mother wasn't Jewish. But he must have obviously been aware of it. And he certainly knew he was a Jew the because fence. he was hiding. I don't know, it might be Siag la Torah. That's what I just said. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I agree. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's okay. So this is uh, my final image. And, and he did a whole series of um, images that were created with Vaseline on glass plates. 
which is so creative and innovative. And this is um, this figure being pursued through the desert, through a desert or wilderness by a bird. So it's, he's being sort of hectored by this bird. And um, I mean, just the bird looks so like a sheen. Does. Mm -hmm. So um, that is my presentation of the meat bar as a psychological place, and I would like to invite those of you who are presenting today. Now, because I forgot the images, Phil is going to share his work next week, and I apologize again for that. But we have Lois and Judy Solomon and uh, Marla. So, uh, would anyone like to volunteer to go first? Do you want to go first, Lois? Because we received your so poem. You, you have the poem. Um, and I'll just say that um, my husband, um, five, he's 70 years old. Five years ago, he announced that we were going to, he wanted to bike from our house in Riverwoods to New York City in five years. And I thought maybe he would forget the idea. So, But then when I started thinking about going across the Erie Canal, the towpath, 400 miles, and then down the Hudson Valley, I was really in love with the Hudson Valley painters. And of course, I'm not naive. I know that it's not the same way it was when they painted it, not pristine and beautiful. But I thought, oh boy, this is going to be gorgeous. You know, they painted fantasized. Yes, 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 right, yes, yes. So this is um, part of the experience, and, you know, I guess my relating to the history and to the landscape. Biking 400 miles along the Erie Canal. They started digging Clinton's ditch in Shahari. 1817 to 1825, waist deep in mud, freed slaves and Irish immigrants earned daily wages of 50 cents and jiggers of whiskey. Six men, a team of horses, and a stump puller could fell 40 trees per day. Stones were plowed, lakes, creeks, and rivers got linked to canals 10 feet wide and 4 feet deep. When it opened, cannons placed 80 miles apart were shot in succession. Governor Clinton poured water from Lake Erie into the Hudson. Beside the canal ran a towpath where mule teams pulled wheat from Ohio, corn and hogs from Indiana, silver-backed mirrors and varnished maple chests went west. Lockport, Brockport, and Spencerport flourished. The first Book of Mormon was printed in Palmyra. Broadsides with words like abolition, temperance, and women's suffrage traveled from Troy to Buffalo. Now a jagged gash zigzags across the Empire State through wounded towns where only funeral and tattoo parlors remain. In Herkimer County, Remington hires 200 to make guns. In Brockport, they make students, and in Rome, IT. In Canastota, transient Mexicans rent rooms at the Roadway Inn while refurbishing a factory. Union workers strike in rusted out towns with boarded up stores and broken dreams. Eight days we bike past idle locks on cinder paths covered with colonies of geese or their droppings. Like people, the geese move on after they have polluted the place. In many spots, the trails are ruts or disappear into weeds and grass. The closer we get to Albany, the more asphalt-covered paths. But roots, descendants of trees toppled by tree fellers, 
and stump pullers push up the tarmac to jolt us. In an arbor of trees near Cahoas, a butterfly rests on manure, a metaphor, I think, of the Erie Canal. Beautiful. We, we did the whole 1,200 miles. Yeah. This was just a part of it. This was... Is, is this part of a... Did you put together a chapbook or a collection that chronicles... We, oh, we just got back. <laughs> we, did, we did do a blog. Um, I can send you the link if you want to see some of the pictures and some of the Speaking things. Speaking of that, because our time is so limited, yeah. although not everybody's presenting, um, I'd like to encourage everybody to share through email. Yes. So um, please start sending me images or, and or written pieces, and I'll just send them out to the whole group. How does that sound? That'll, that'll augment. I mean, because like before next week, Phil, if you want to send out your, some of your images, we can we can do that and then we can discuss them as well. So um, I think that'll be good. One other thing I want to mention, this isn't cutting into your time, is that Sharon Goodman, who's not here today, has offered her home on a Thursday morning the week after this class ends for one more meeting so that oh. we can continue to share your work. Oh, cool. Please go ahead. So, just open to comments or um, visual things or things that you know Amazing. you would change or men waist deep in mud and you didn't know that yeah. the was going to come up. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, the undifferentiated. So, then. can I ask, have yes. you been writing poetry uh, for a long time, or is this, no, you just decided I've, this was a way to express yourself? Oh no, I've been po writing poetry about ten or fifteen years. So um, this was just. And I don't know how many poems I'm actually going to get out of this. Um, I think it's more narrative about our experience. When you were in progress, were you writing in your head, or this is after? Uh, no, I was just trying to get. Avoid avoid the ruts and the and the roadkill and the whatever, and just get where we were going. Was your husband happy? Sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I think when we finished it, he was like, oh, okay, you know. Now what? Now what? Yeah, now you, what is he going to dream of? How did up? you come back? Like, we flew back. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. There's always that letdown yeah. after, yeah. after you there publish is, right? something or after you have a show. How, lo how long did it take you, Lois? Uh, 25 days of biking, but we were gone a month. So, oh. yeah. Yeah. I just have a question about um, your process. Um, because there's so many wonderful details as an artist, how do you save those? Or do you document something? You know, I know you said you have photographs, but do you stop in the evening and then uh, write some things down? Because I always find, you know, I, I even in this class, you know, to go back and I forget, and I just wonder how you manage that. That's a great thing uh, about biking, is it's kind of meditative, because, you know, my husband wanted me to listen to music or stories, and I said, no, I want to be in it. So sometimes I let things just go over and over in my mind so that I don't forget them. Mm. You do lose some things. Mm -hmm. And then I kept like a really little bitty journal and would jot things down as I saw them. And then certain, I think the poems really tend to come for me out of visual things. Like when I saw this gorgeous swallowtail butterfly on a big turd, yeah. thought, oh my God, that is the metaphor yeah. for this yeah. whole journey. Because mm -hmm. I expected the Erie Canal to be so much nicer than it was. 
so yeah. Do you carry a sketchbook or a journal, Brenda? Tons of, look at this. <laughs> I do, and then I write on this, and I draw on that, and I look through that, and I write all these things down from the class, and I get home and I forget to go back and look again, you know? Yeah, so you have to go back into your notebooks. Back, Even some of the old notebooks, yes. you'll find something that struck you, and then... Yeah, yeah I try. Yeah. I it also try. Little ones and mm -hmm. yeah. But then you're on, always on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. I think the act of writing it down, though, um, process it in a way that it, it stays in your mind. The important ideas, too, don't you think? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Oh, and I make notes on my phone, too. And I just want to say, uh, Lois writes short stories. Her work has been published, and um, there's a lot to it. Well, thanks. Thank so, you. And uh, let's talk about your, your language background. Tell about that, please. Oh, well, I was a Spanish professor. So you write in Spanish over 40 as well. Years. I do. I just had something published in a journal in Venezuela that I, I was shocked. I, you know, you have to send your age and your nationality. I thought, they don't want this old lady from the United States. So, and it was a story that came out of last year's Beit Midrash that was on uh, oh. Sam Bernstein's. It was about Noah. And it was... No, I'll just... I'll, it's in English and in Spanish, but oh. I'll send you, email you cool. the story. But so it was in last year's exhibit. Like to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you um, translate it all then? Not usually. Usually I'll either start out writing in Spanish or start out writing in English. But that story that I did last year in the Beit Midrash about Noah, I thought, oh, this is really short, and I could translate that. That could be really good in Spanish, but I, I usually mean, do don't. Do you ever take a published poems written by Spanish-speaking poets and translate them into English? Do yes, you work in that occasionally. <coughs> and I have a story out now, a young writer whose short story I just published, and she's sending it around to see if oh, something can happen to it. It's a very nice story. But I don't, you know, I don't yeah, translate really, that often. Yeah. I hate to cut you off. Go. Go Sorry, Hold thank you. Thank you. This is going to be painful. She was an art teacher. Would you like to show me? Cool. I think I knew that. Yeah. I know, I took yeah. the course. Oh, where is my art teacher? Can you talk about her while she's setting up? I don't really know. Well, some of those as well. So I know you're a teacher, right, Marla? Yeah. Can I help you set up? No, I'm, I'm just going to pay. I brought things I could just, okay. I, I figured I'd just pass things around. And also with the Rochelle Giselle Jewish High School. My son was a student of Marlowe's. Yeah. Um, actually, I was a graphic designer for 30 years before I became a teacher. And I will just say simply, I just didn't like sitting in front of a computer all the time, and I wanted to work with people. So I went into teaching. I started teaching at uh, the Suburban Fine Arts Center. I had a class. I just made up the name watercolor for those who don't think they can. <laughs> and I um, just wanted to see what happened. And I started teaching, and it's been 16 years I've been doing that. Teach uh, classes in the area, uh, teach classes at my home. I've also been teaching for 16 years at Rochelle Zell Jewish High School. So I brought, I do a lot of different things. I don't really consider myself an artist. I consider myself a teacher, sort of play around with a lot of different things. So um, I'll just
pass these around. Please do. Okay. Or if you um, walk these are re you know these are recent in the last year. Uh, this is just a picture of my house and my dog waiting for people to come to my class. And um, what I did was I just I was using a picture of the of the dog, and it was so small you really couldn't see the dog. So I just cut the picture out and stuck it in the door. And that's sort of the kind of thing um, I do. This was um, hiking in Zion uh, National Park in Utah. That's a watercolor. That was last year. And um, this is just watercolor and uh, pen and ink. Just a little bit abstract, but fall. So I'm going to pass it around that way. Um, sometimes um, I've always, uh, because my graphic background, I lots of times make my artwork into cards. So um, my husband and I were visiting some friends that were in San Miguel, Mexico this year. And these were from photographs. This was the fruit market. And this was the flower market. So um, I'll just pass those around. And um, Marla, what was your medium that you used to make the? This is watercolor and oil pastels mixed together. Um, so these are the cards from those pieces. And this is another piece that I didn't bring, but this was from that series also. So, um, you know, we're at an age where all our friends are trying to get rid of stuff. So <laughs> these friends had us stay with them. I didn't want to give them my paintings. What are they going to do? They just emptied their house. So I made them a set of cards to give them. Um, so I do that a lot. This was uh, a fall card that I did. And sometimes I'll make little, these are like little note cards to put on a bottle of wine, you know, a gift card. Um, I also have been doing a lot of my watercolors and having them printed uh, this new digital process on fabrics. So I have I've done a lot of tablecloths. So for every holiday, I have a tablecloth. So this is my spoon flower. I'm addicted to it. Yeah. Do you all know about spoon flowers? Yeah. 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 I, it's, you can you can do like. Well, this is what I, this is my Rosh Hashanah one. This was my, I used this for Thanksgiving. And um, anyway, you just take one panel. In other words, so the artwork was just this one piece. You scan it into the computer, you press a button, and boom, 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 boom. It all, you know, comes out, and then you can print as much as you you want. Marla, so, is that what you did with the kids at school? Is I've done it with the kids at school. Yeah, you had those beautiful, sure. you just had yeah. jeans and you yeah. had Yeah, so you I get, and that's, that's what I do. I get little ideas and I think, oh, I can make this work for, for school yeah, because I can hang up a piece of cloth. I don't even have to have something framed. You know, and I can just print a quarter and it costs me $11 and wow, I got a piece of artwork. So I do that with the kids. And what do you want I'm sorry. I'm, I'm also very hard of hearing. I didn't that. Where do you have the cloth printed? It's a, it's a website. It's called Spoonflower. Oh, just www.spoonflower.com, and they do. It's it's great because you can um, you can pick your fabric. You can get 
a small little sample or you can get, uh, you know, I've got my dining room table. And um, that's, that's it. I, I do a lot of different things. I don't have one. I'm not really good at anything, but I like, I like playing around. That's, that's what I do. I mean, I, I feel like I was a graphic designer. I worked for people and had people you know, buy things or purchase things. And I don't want to really please anybody else now but myself. Yeah. Marla, talk about women's journeys. Oh, women's journeys. I'm also involved in um, a group called Women's Journeys in Fiber. And um, we showcase, we, have, we get an assignment every year of one thing, and everybody does the same thing, and they're all, like, totally different. We show at the Botanical Gardens at Navy Pier. Uh, last year we did umbrellas. This year we're doing birds. And what's so fun is everybody gets the same assignment, and everybody's is so totally different. And it's fan. just a fun so thing. Exciting. So you can look up that website, too. It's called Women's Journeys in Fiber. And we've done about 14 projects. And at each project, if you click on the project, they'll show you everybody's different projects. Um, yeah, just pretty local. And we have our next, uh, our show will be at Botanical Gardens the first week in November. Is that during the, the fiber show? And the, during the fiber oh, show. Which, which I really yeah. recommend. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, and I just sort of got in, it's a great group, I just sort of got in on the skin, in the skin of my teeth because most people are traditional fiber artists. They quilt or they knit or everything. And the only reason I'm in there is because I print my watercolors because it's fiber. So I'm, I'm a little on the, out, uh, on, the, on the out of it, but I'm in it, and I You're love being in the group. Hmm? You're in the wilderness. I'm in the wilderness. The meat bar of the fiber group. And that's it. Thank wow. you, Marla. Okay, wow. okay, we'll go get it. That is fantastic. It's fabulous. I love your sense of color and line mm -hmm. um, and detail. It's all, there's... You're showing us a lot of different things, but there's a, a singularity of vision that I could say, yeah, I recognize that's Marla's. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I know so. that as a teacher. I can say that to all my students. I can tell after I've worked with somebody one or two times, right. I can pick out which is going to be their huh. artwork. So everybody has their own style. Um, well, I think we're kind of come to the end, so let's oh, yeah, Judy. Well, I'm a role follower. You said three, I've left Okay, sorry. Um, I retired from um, being an elementary school art teacher five years ago and decided, well, go back to printmaking or go into ceramics, which I just really um, feel so good when you have your hands in wet clay. And I just feel my blood pressure go down. Really. <laughs> you know, I'm going to pursue ceramics. So for five years, uh, so in high fire clay, it's a whole different vocabulary and, and set of things to learn. So even if you're, you have clay experiences, all right, so I'm just experimenting with uh, um, all the elements, the, the clay body, there's, there's choices, and then, of course, the glazes and the decorating and all that. And it's like taking a whole bunch of elements of art and throwing them up in the air and then the piece comes out, and then you say, okay, well, this, this, this worked, this, this, this didn't work. Anyway, but it's fun. So this, um, this uh, represents my, uh, like a functional it? piece. I can pass, the, okay. pass this around. So um, that I was doing even before the ABM started. Uh, I was made midrash, but um, 
just it just took me to another level, you know, past functional and a let's play with clay to think about deeper things. So I have from my father his collection of shells. Of course, you know, he's deceased, and for decades I would just just uh, get so interested in in his shell collection, being an artist. And he had from very large pieces to very small pieces. So when he died, I inherited. I didn't count them, but I would say up to 2,000 pieces, from very small to really, really, you know, large, gorgeous uh, pieces. And I said, I've got to do something with these. How many can I put out in little shallow bowls in the house? Just, you know, maybe 100. So the plan was to integrate a shell into a clay piece. So uh, this was one of the first ones. This I still haven't figured out how to hang. Uh, it's, it's only masking tape, so if it comes off, don't worry. Um, so you insert so, the shell after the firing process. Uh, it does yes, not actually there's an okay. opening. Yeah, and you'll, if you turn it, you see this particular piece um, is cracked there and there, but it's still integrated. It's, it's not in pieces, but there is a crack there. So this was a learning piece, but going back and trying to choose just two to show you, I still felt that this um, had uh, a certain um, uh, immediacy or, or integration of the shell, a more personal look than, than some of these others. So I thought, so this actually, we figured out how to hang. So um, uh, let's see. So the, I still consider them sketches. Because before I'd get out of bed in the morning, I said, okay, I'm going to go down and make a sketch, you know, see what the shell wants to do. But, of course, I get down, the first thing I want to do is roll out clay and start playing with the clay. So I said, okay, I'll figure that out later, you know. So anyway, so this is one where I think that a little bit of the design uh, echoes and, and re interrelates to the shell itself. So this is the beginning of a process. And... I have around eight or nine more, but I haven't figured out how to hang them yet. So uh, the other thing, uh, when the, do we have more time? Yeah. Okay. The other like list of time. questions, when you said, I think the direction I'll go is that there will be some kind of clay wall piece with an opening, and the opening may be bigger. And uh, so I'm thinking a lot about where I am now in terms of art and how my father knew me when he died in 1999 and here are his shells and I can recess the space a bit so if the space is a little bigger I plan to put something I don't know if it'll be a shell but some or photo but more likely even a little painting or something that you know goes back some decades and, and some, about uh, present and past so it'll be a connection to my father, either with the shells or memories or things like that. I just want to so. recommend that you check out artist Joseph Cornell. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind that. Um, oh, well, my God. The rest of us don't, so okay, just say a word. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph Cornell uh, very much fits in the vein of what I showed you today. He was a janitor in Queens. Um, he was not educated as an artist. He, I think he lived with his parents for his whole adult life. And he had this, he worked in the basement and collected things and old postcards and images and he put together these sort of diorama t type things. Boxes. They're boxes. They're very much like Yudrich Heisler's work. Um, he, they're, 
are a lot of them at the Art Institute were really fortunate because the collectors who collected a huge quantity of his work donated it to the Art Institute. So there are rooms of Joseph Cornell. He's one of my absolute faves. But the, but the idea of time, of, of narrative, also that you can make things. He really didn't make things. He just assembled things. But you can work with your clay, you know, and, and maybe look at how he puts things together. You know, it's just a, a thought. Any other comments or questions for Judy? How long did your father, how long was he a collector and where are the different beaches where he collected? Uh, I think from his 40s to his 80s, wherever. It started just, you know, in the Bahamas picking up pretty shells on the beach to you know, really an obsession that he went in it, to stores. You know, and they did travel extensively in the you know, second half of his life. Did he write about the collecting? There were some uh, some boxes or some that that said where they're from, but no, not a meticulous. No uh, notes. Some, a few notes, but unfortunately, in the haste that I had to vacate this place, I being an art, I, I yeah, there's no way I didn't have time to match the shelves to the picture, so maybe some of that is lost. But it wasn't um, meticulously collected that I felt it was part of the identity. So, all over. <laughs> I'm just, oh, go ahead. Well, two thoughts. One, first of all, I have to say, as a writer and not an artist, like, it's so exciting for me to see people share their work when it's still in experimental stages. You know, sometimes I'll go to a gallery exhibit and you hear or you read, well, this is how I did it, but to see it, and then when I will get to see it later, I hope, you know, to see, oh, wow, I saw it when it was... So that's, for me, a very exciting opportunity, and it made me also think when I see that, what you were talking about, Marla, in terms of wouldn't it be cool if everybody was given the same object and incorporated it in their own medium, you know, either in fiber or ceramics or, you know, whatever. Isn't that sort of what we're going to be doing yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. 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 that's a concept, yeah. in other words. We're yeah. all working off of the same concept, but if it was actually a material Thing. Like I'm mm -hmm. looking at the mm -hmm. seashell, so I'm not saying that's not also cool what we're doing. Yeah. But to you know, because I think like I look at that and I think my experience of the shell is so shaped by its context. What you did with it, you know, if I saw it in a different place, I think I would have different associations. I just want to uh, comment or respond to Arlen's comment. What you just described is what we our goal of what happens here. So as we move towards the second half of the class, we really want to have more sharing, um, some of which will happen in class. And, and we also really encourage people to get together on your own, even if it's just through emails or on the phone or meet. Um, there are some wonderful things that have happened in the past through collaborations. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say for myself, um, I've been trying different media for the last few years, and it's just been mind-blowing. I really didn't anticipate that at this stage of my life, in my artistic life, I would be trying new things. And what I find when I get into woodcuts, for instance, is that my paintings are really changed by that and oh, improved by that. So I really encourage you to cross-pollinate with each other because it's not just about, well, a social experience or helping someone else. It also will invigorate your own work. So. Sally forth and <laughs> pollinate. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thank you for staying. Today.